short little series. For those of you that may not uh, know why, we're in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. We've been going through Jonah, looking at uh, the life of the prophet through three sessions, three sermons. Uh, we saw him uh, receive the call. He was disobedient to the call. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish, and, and, which was the opposite direction, trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And God prepared a storm that got him off of the boat and ultimately prepared a fish, a giant fish there to swallow him up. And he was there in the belly of that fish three days uh, where he prayed to God. God heard him. And at that moment, then God spits, uh, has, the, has the fish spit Jonah um, out of his mouth. And we've looked at not just the message. We saw him going the wrong direction. We know in our life sometimes um, as we read what God's Word says, what He's communicated to us through His Word, we may also choose to be disobedient to it and go a different direction. But we also see the consequences of that, um, that God did bring chastening or discipline on Jonah in, in his life through some very uh, creative means in the sense that he used that uh, fish to hold on to him. It said in chapter three, or chapter 2, verse 10, that uh, God commanded that the whale or the fish, as it were, would spit Jonah back out, and it did so. And it says in chapter 3, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city and a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One of the things that I love so much about the story of Jonah is it doesn't just speak about this prophet's, prophet's reluctance to serve God um, in the way that God had called him to. And, and, and it doesn't just speak about a man um, who knows what God wants him to do, but chooses to do something else. It's also really the overarching theme, uh, the, the big umbrella under which Jonah sets, really is the love and the forgiveness of God. That even Jonah, being a prophet of God, whose purpose it is to speak what God tells him to speak, is obedient, but yet Jonah, still in the belly of the fish, finds forgiveness. He finds a merciful, long-suffering God. In just a moment, we're going to see just to what extent Jonah understood the mercy and forgiveness of God. But here, God calls him to go to the Ninevites, the enemies of Israel. These are the Assyrians that he's calling him to go to. And, and Jonah, of course, doesn't do it but, uh, initially. But then we see that God is not just willing to forgive and to pardon Jonah, but God's forgiveness was also available to the Assyrians or to those in the city of Nineveh. And I want you to notice, because there are several strange things, and I want to end this short little series this morning, I want to end it looking at these strange things, these paradoxes in, in Jonah, if you will. Some really odd things happen, but they tell us a lot about God. I want you to notice this first one. In verse 5, or excuse me, look at verse 4, please. It said, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his sermon. 
We don't have any record of him saying anything other than that. All we know is that he's walking into town, which appears to be a three days journey in scope, a large, sprawling city. And he's walking, and as he's walking through it, it appears that his only sermon, his only words, are you have 40 days before God destroys you. That's a pretty interesting sermon, isn't it? Notice this. Jonah doesn't say, you have 40 days to get it right. Jonah doesn't say, you have 40 days to get your your city in order. You have 40 days to cut out the idolatry. You have 40 days to make the the God of the Israelites your God. He doesn't say anything about what they're supposed to do. He says nothing about justification, says nothing about an opportunity of forgiveness, mercy, or redemption. All he says is this as he's walking through. 40 days and you guys are going down. That is a very peculiar sermon. In fact, in the Hebrew text, it was only five words. In the Hebrew text, he only said five words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh is going down. You see, the first strange thing to me we see in verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. I like verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. How would you like that job? How would you like to be the sackcloth applier to the cows? And cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the voice or violence that is in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Here's the first odd thing, peculiar thing that jumps out to me. This reluctant prophet didn't want to do it. Don't believe he still wants to do it. And he's walking through the city and saying in those five Hebrew words, you've 40 days and you're going down. 40 days and you're going down. 40 days and you're going down. And you know what? Even with no promise of redemption, even with no information on how they can do what needs to be done in order to make it right, the great thing is this. They hear that message as simple as it was. And the Bible said they believed God. And if you're jotting down notes, what amazes me is that such a revival came from such a tiny little spark. Such a revival came from such a tiny little spark. Now, let me tell you, this should really, really encourage us. Because God, look at the whole picture. God sends a patriot prophet, 
reluctant and disobedient at best to a Gentile nation that does not believe in the one true God, but ultimately believes in other gods. And this reluctant, disobedient, patriotic prophet walks into the enemy's camp and says, 40 days and you're going to be tore down and just keeps moving right on through town. And God, God, had the ability to use a reluctant, disobedient prophet to communicate a peculiar message to a people that did not know Him. And despite all of those factors, the people see Jonah and hear him walking through town with a very simple message. Forty days and you're going down. And immediately, the Bible says, immediately they hear it and they start telling people, forty days and we're going down. We've better seek the one true God. What an amazing event. A short message from a reluctant, disobedient prophet to a people who did not know God, and yet from those few five Hebrew words, from those five Hebrew words, from that little spark, started a wildfire spiritually in Nineveh. Aren't you glad to know that God does not need the biggest name to do His bidding? I am thankful that God does not need the most talented person, doesn't even need the most skilled person in order to accomplish His purpose. This was a guy that didn't want to be there. This was a guy that was saying things that he he probably didn't even want to. We know he didn't even want it to happen. He was disobedient and reluctant and he's walking through town saying these words and all of a sudden from those words, this spiritual revival, this wildfire that started with that little spark is going out and I am so thankful that our sovereign God has the ability to orchestrate events and to empower and to work throughout circumstances and situations to bring His purpose to pass. I believe this. I believe He does bring all things, work all things together for the good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Jonah was where he was supposed to have been. His mouth was saying what he was supposed to say, but it doesn't appear that his heart was ever engaged in that work. And you hear me all the time as a pastor talking about not just our, our hands, but our heart. And not just our heads, but engaging our hearts in the work of the Lord. And the great news is that, you know what, I believe even though we should have our hearts in the work, it doesn't matter if your heart's not in it, God can still use it. I believe God is still sovereign enough to use me and you through our, through our victories, through our failures, through our imperfections. He is still able to accomplish His purpose. Only five word in the Hebrew text, and He never announced justification. He never said, get it right, and God may spare you. All He said was 40 days. God does not need the most polished. God does not need the most perfect person for the job. God is the one who gives abilities, 
gifts. God is the one that brings life to the Word. That should encourage us that there was such a revival came from such a tiny spark. Let me ask you a question. What, what spark are you and I engaged in? You know, just those few words that we may share with our friend, our coworker, our family member, just those few words that we may share, as imperfect as they may be, if they are the Word of God, if they are founded on the truth of the Word of God, we have no idea what revival may come from even just a spark. We may have no idea the true wildfire of revival that may be sparked simply from one little flame that comes from us. The second thing is, is really, really a peculiar, peculiar situation. It says in, in verse 10 of chapter 3 that, that revival is coming, even the cows are mourning, even the cows are humbled, uh, if you will. And, and it says that God was pleased with this. And God had relented. He had turned and said, I'm not going to destroy them. I, I've, I, I've accepted their repentance. But in chapter 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. A great revival, wildfire of revival spiritually spreading all through Nineveh. And I don't know, but I would think that that would make a lot of preachers happy. I would think that that would make a lot of evangelists very pleased. But not Jonah. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for, you, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Guys, this could not be any more of a strange occurrence. The prophet patriot going to the enemies of his nation, going to these sinful people whose, whose unrighteousness was exceedingly great, he goes in, he preaches, and he says, God, I knew this was going to happen. You see, what Jonah does here is he gives us some insight to the reason of why he went to Tarshish in the first place. You see, Jonah has kind of opened up his chest and revealed his heart in this comment by saying, God, I knew all along when you called me to go to the ugh, Ninevites, when you told me to go there and preach, God, I knew that you are merciful. I knew that you were forgiving. I knew that you are a God that would relent from what you had planned on doing. God, I knew that you would forgive them. I knew you would love those people, and you did it. You know what's crazy? And I think this is important because this is something that can happen to us. Jonah had great theology. And I mean that in the sense that Jonah knew God. 
He says, God, I know you're loving. I know you're merciful. I know you'll repent. Jonah understood who God was. Up here, he had it. But it never made the connection to here. Up here, he was a theological giant. Down here, he was a horrible servant in that sense. What he knew up here was that God would forgive, but what he had in here is that he didn't want God to forgive those people. I don't know what prejudices you may have. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But I pray that that understanding and knowledge that we have of the loving, forgiving, long-suffering, merciful, compassionate God, I pray that what we know about Him up here would find a way to make sure that it is rooted here. The Bible tells us that we are to be rooted and grounded in love. Jonah made a great theologian. He even made a great evangelist. You know what's funny is, what do you think would have happened had the book ended on chapter 3? Had the story ended in chapter 3? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Had the story stopped at the end of chapter 3, Jonah probably would have been hailed as one of the greatest evangelists of his time. He would have been propped up as a missionary genius. We would have taken up offerings in his name, right? As Southern Baptists. Come on now. We'd have had a Jonah offering. Lottie and Annie. All right, anyway... He would, have been, it would have, he would have appeared as though he was some great missionary. But here's the thing, is that God inspired that fourth chapter too that revealed, you know, in our life, we may appear one way. People may look at us and we may portray ourselves in one way to people. They may know us one way and God may see us in a totally different manner. Does our head, what we know about God, does it match up with our heart? Is our heart also motivated and compelled by that same love and forgiveness? Do we forgive others as we have been forgiven too? Isn't it funny that that is a a horrible prayer? It's a horrible prayer he prays in chapter 4. Horrible. God, I knew you were going to forgive them. Now it's just better that I die. I'd have just rather die right now, God. Can you imagine one of your deacons saying that? Can you imagine having a conversation with one of your deacons and they come up to you and say, you know what, I cannot believe God forgave that person. I knew he would do it. I'd just rather die. I just wish God would take me right now. What would you think about that deacon? You'd probably want him undeaconed, wouldn't you? You'd question that man's heart. What if your pastor said that? What if I got up here and said that? I'll tell you what, my my phone would be busy. At least I would hope it would be busy for the next three weeks if I said something as foolish as that. I'd have a lot of visitors in my office, and rightly so. 
You see, Jonah, this is funny about Jonah. He prayed the worst when things were the best. And he prayed the best when things were the worst. Do you think we ever have a tendency to do that too? We pray the best when things are worse. Man, when he was in, when he was in the fish's belly... I mean, he's praying towards the temple. How he knew which way the temple was, I don't know. But he's praying towards the temple. I mean, he is magnifying and glorifying God. He knows that God listens. He knows that God hears. He loves God. He gets out and now he's saying, God, you did it. Sometimes in my life, I pray the best when things are the worst. When things are the worst, sometimes I pray the best. I hope that you and I would strive to have a consistent prayer life, a consistent walk with the Lord, one that is motivated by a theology of love in our mind and motivated by a theology of love in our heart that works its way out through our hands. Notice this third thing with me as we move on. God's use of such interesting instruments. First, there was such a revival coming from such a tiny spark. Second, Jonah was displeased with God's bestowed grace. And thirdly, God's use of such interesting elements. God uses some funny stuff. Jonah was going the wrong way, so what did God do? He brought a storm. told you before, God uses storms of direction and storms of correction. Looks like that may have been both on Jonah's case. He got a double shot. Then what did God use? He used a big fish, didn't he? Brought that fish to swallow him up. Held him right there in that little incubator of faith. Squeezed out of him what he wanted from him to bring him to the place of obedience. In chapter 4, verses 6, as Jonah is sitting now on the hill waiting to see if, they, if God may change his mind and destroy him after all, he wants the best seat in the house. And verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Isn't that awesome about God? Here's this prophet who has, has it all up here but none here. And yet God is still aware that he's experiencing some minor heat stroke. that he might shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And when it happened, when the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God prepared the storm to get him in the water prepared the fish to be an incubator to hold him so he couldn't go anywhere. When Jonah's mind changed about going to Nineveh, God spit him out. He gets to Nineveh, he preaches, he sees the revival, he still thinks God's going to may, may at the last minute turn and destroy them, so he climbs up on the hill to get the best seat in the house for all the fireworks that are going to come or that could come, and while he's sitting there, he gets hot, and God, even in his mercy, provides this gourd to be over the head to provide shade for Jonah, and Jonah's grateful. And then God prepares a worm, and the worm goes in there. I wish God would keep the worms out of my tomato plants at home. 
But God prepares this worm to come into the gourd and it withers overnight. Crazy thing God does. He, he gives and he takes away. He, he gives life and then he destroys it right there. And, and this gourd withers up. And then God provides this vehement east wind, this hot wind. Man, it's blowing in on Jonah. And he's about to come to the place where he dies. So he has seen God's protection and shade. He has seen God uh, remove that shade. And then he has seen this hot wind. So things go from good to bad to good to bad to good to bad and Jonah says I just want to die you see God was using every one of these events every one of them the storm the fish the gourd the worm and the wind and I believe that God was using the storm the fish, the gourd, the worm, the wind. To teach Jonah a lesson. You know what that lesson was? Verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. By the way, if you're wondering what that sounded like, picture in your mind a four-year-old saying that. Is it right for you to be angry? Yes, it's right for me to be angry. That's kind of the impression I get. Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their left and right hand and much livestock. And much livestock. God used every event, every event, to remind Jonah of God's love for the Ninevites. Jonah gets in the ship to go to Tarshish. What does God do? No, you don't. I told you to go to Nineveh. You're going the wrong way. So God sends a storm to get him out of the boat into the water. Then God gets the giant fish. And what does he have the giant fish do? Swallow him up and hold him. Why? Because God is bringing him to the place where he will go to Nineveh. When the whale spits him out, what does he do? The Bible says that God comes to him again and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. God gives him the same command he gave him the first time. So then when he goes, what does he use? He uses the gourd, the worm, and the wind. Why? To teach Jonah. I love those people. I love those people. Those people are going to be destroyed. Those people stood literally on the corner of destruction. They were standing with their toes hanging over. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible reminds us that God does not want to destroy. God wants to forgive. And Jonah never got it. And in our life, I believe that God orchestrates and uses situations and scenarios and our surroundings. I believe He uses those things also to remind us of His great love for us and His great love for others. Crazy. 
A revival sprung up from this little bitty sermon and Jonah was so displeased with God's grace that came. That's crazy. And God used crazy elements, including a reluctant prophet, to bring about His purpose. And the fourth and final thing. Something that should leave us amazed. Something that should truly truly just cause us to pause for a minute is God's love for the Ninevites. These people were pretty bad. The Assyrians were known not just for their idol worship and for their uh, very fleshy worship services. I read somewhere that one of their means of punishment was to impale people on poles and leave them setting up. I read somewhere else that that they were partial creators of the crucifixion. That they had a hand in making the crucifixion what it was through, through history. These people, just according to that, that's pretty bad. And yet, and yet, God would send His man. You see, what if as we close, what if we look at the book of Jonah, not just with the perspective on Jonah, because I'll give you this, the emphasis is on Jonah. I mean, it's named after him. He, is, he does appear to be the central figure. But let me ask you this. What if you and I looked at the story of Jonah and said Jonah is not the central figure? What if we moved Jonah to the side and said, God, it looks like the Assyrians are the central figure. God, it looks like the enemies of Your people. It looks like those those awful Ninevites. Those sinful Ninevites. It looks like they appear to be the central theme of the picture. How do we know that? What was the first words out of God's mouth? Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. What if we saw the storm in Jonah's life not as something that was primarily to work on Jonah, but what if we saw the storm in Jonah's life as God saying, I've got a plan for you, Jonah, and I want you to get back over to the Ninevites. What if we saw the fish not just as something that was working in Jonah's life, but something that God was orchestrating and working for the purpose of getting him back so he could forgive the Ninevites. What if we saw the gourd and the worm and the wind not just as something that happened to Jonah, but something that God is saying, you pity this gourd, but you don't care about these people. It seems as though the heart of the story of Jonah is not so much wrapped up in Jonah as it is God's love for sinners. I believe God's love is vast. 
I believe He takes our sins and He casts them as far as the east is from the west. I believe there is no load limit on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. I believe it doesn't matter what you've done, how many times you've done it, how bad you think it is, how bad God thinks it is. I don't care how black, how hard your heart is. I don't care how deep those roots of sin go. I believe there is not a sin that you and I can commit that God cannot forgive. I look at the story of Jonah and I don't just see a reluctant prophet. I see a relentless God that says these people are going to die and my, my righteousness declares that if something doesn't happen, I'm wiping them off the face of the earth. And I cannot look at Jonah simply as Jonah saying, I don't want to go. I look at God saying, you will go because I love them. And I hope in our life, I hope right here, right here, that first we would experience that love and forgiveness. Oh, oh what, what great love, what manifold love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. To know that there's nothing you can do in your life that God does not stand ready and willing and eager to forgive you for. To know that God's not running after you to beat you down, He's running after you to lift you up. And I pray that we would experience that today. Right now, today, this very moment, you can start your life brand new with Jesus Christ. If you've come in here and you have rejected the call, maybe you've never heard of forgiveness, maybe you never knew that, that it was something you could have, maybe you thought you had to earn it, brother or sister, you can't. That's why it's a free gift. And today you can walk in here with your, 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 your bill is long with your debt. And you can walk out of here every bit of it paid by the blood of Jesus Christ set to His account on Calvary. First, I hope that we experience that love personally. And secondly, I hope we make it our life's ambition. Our life's ambition to give it away. To say, God, in my heart today, God, in my heart today, give me a love for others. God, help me take this up here and put it here so that it may come out here. That's what God desires. Where do you stand with God today? Is there heart work that needs to be done? Do you know Christ as your Savior? If not, I'll meet you right here. I'll meet you right down here. Today, is your life right with God? Maybe you need to come to the place where you say, God... You know what? The first and last words in Jonah are from God. It's only one of two books in the Bible that ends with a question. Today, what's your answer to God? Maybe it's salvation, baptism, rededication, church membership. Maybe there's something on your heart that you know is God from God that He is wanting you to do and you have been reluctant and you say today, God, no more. I'm getting off this ship to Tarshish and I'm going to Nineveh. I'm doing and going where you called me to go and do. 
And I'm going to pray with you this morning as I pray. When we say amen, Jason's going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to be right down here and I would love to pray with you. I would love to counsel you. I would love to talk with you about whatever decision God has placed on your heart this morning. That we would walk out of here in obedience. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the book of Jonah that reminds us not just of a reluctant prophet, but of a relentless God who had his man in mind who had his carrier that was going to take the message. That was going to be an extension of his love, of your love and your mercy, and he went the other way. And God, he went through many trials. But Lord, they were brought on as discipline to learn a lesson about how much you love others, including the Ninevites. And I pray in our life, God, that today we would know that the same God that was willing to impay, that was willing to forgive those Gentiles stands ready to forgive us and has already done the work to do so. It is for us to receive freely today. And once we receive that love, Lord, I pray that it would penetrate every aspect of our life and that we would walk out of here making it our one ambition to be the spark to be the small flame, to play a part in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world. In His name we pray. Amen.